Welcome to the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Gosporé, a health and science reporter. Join me as we cover advancements being made in health informatics and explainable AI for students, researchers, and healthcare practitioners interested in applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning. This podcast is produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Health Information Management. Headed by Ahmed Tafdi, Pitt's Hex AI Lab cultivates extramural collaborations with academic institutions both nationally and internationally through its research, educational contributions, and this podcast series. Hello, and welcome back to Pitt Hex AI, a podcast series produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory. I'm Jordan Gosporé, your host, and today we're going to speak with Shriram Natarajan, Professor of Computer Science and Director of the Center for Machine Learning at the University of Texas at Dallas. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. To get us started, would you like to share how you got into computer science and then into artificial intelligence, healthcare, and medicine, and what led you to the University of Texas? So I'm Professor Sriram Natrajan. I'm a faculty member here at University of Texas at Dallas. How did I get into computer science? This was probably in my middle school in early 90s. Computers were not big back then. In India, we had one in the school that I was in, which was a pretty good school. There was one small room with about 12 computers. And I, in around my eighth or ninth grade, we had the chance to go half an hour per week to the computer room to do something. And that was my first foray into you know, computing. And I, I thought I, I quite liked, you know, not just playing games, uh, but we were doing this basic as the programming. And so I started liking the idea of uh, doing computer programming. And around my 11th and 12th grade, I quite enjoyed my computer labs quite a bit. That's where we really started doing some basic Fortran. And again, as I said, basic and Fortran, a little bit of COBOL is what we did back then. This is early to mid 90s. And then in high school, I kind of started enjoying it. And that led me to get my undergraduate degree in computer science. But then I realized computer science was a lot more than just coding. So that's where I kind of quite like, you know, one of my favorite subjects was always theory of computing, automate, understanding these finite state machines, Turing machines, design and analysis of algorithms. So I started enjoying the algorithmic side of computing quite a bit. And, and then I, when I came to US, to do my grad school, I really thought I was interested in networks and protocols. And maybe I also like math quite a bit. So I liked uh, doing computational geometry. So that's where I started. And then I took Professor Prasad Padipuli's intelligence course. And this just changed my life. When I took that course, it was my first year of grad school. I kind of realized that's really what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And then needless to say, Prasad became my advisor, or rather I became his PhD student. And then I had a fantastic set of mentors Dr. Tom Dietrich, Dr. Alan Fern, Dr. Wenkeen Wong. Earlier, we had Dr. Bruce D'Ambrosio. So people who have done a lot of work in AI and machine learning, I was uh, trained under them. So then I started enjoying doing machine learning quite a bit. The interesting part was in my PhD thesis, I don't think, I, I think I did a quick search, but I don't think you will find a word of medicine there because it was all purely, you know, thinking about computing as some sort of an assistant to the human and building it on, on you know, all these real-time strategy games, you know, the earlier version of Siri and, and stuff like that. That's what our focus was on. And then when I did my postdoc, again, with two really big stalwarts in machine learning, Professor Jude Chalik and Professor David Page, 
I had the you know fortune of sitting in the biomedical informatics department, and because I was sitting there, out of my interest and Professor David Page's encouragement in particular, I started looking at medical applications, and and that's when I realized that this is really one area where AI and machine learning and computing in general can have a very big impact. Both you know David Page and Jude Chawlik kind of encouraged me to go down this direction. So that's when I I really started you know looking at medicine as an important adaptation of of these ideas, and then that led me to actually join a medical school as as my first appointment. So my first professorship was in a medical school, Wake Forest School of Medicine in North Carolina, Winston Salem. I was there for three years. I really enjoyed talking to all the doctors, all the you know the whole you know looking at so much data. It really you know enriched my life. I, I spent about twelve thirteen hours in school. And I built a small group and brought, and then I moved my group with me to Indiana University because I kind of felt that you know I still want to be in a computing department doing medicine rather than being in a medicine medical school doing computing. So I moved back to Indiana University, where I think I was really encouraged to continue doing what I was doing. We founded the health informatics group there. I had a beautiful set of colleagues. It was really wonderful at IU. But then due to my wife's job situation, we had to move to Dallas, and I've been continuing. The work that I started in in Winston Salem, I'm still doing those work here. So we do work on cardiovascular re- research. We work on Alzheimer's research. We have two NIH-funded grants: one on predicting adverse pregnancy outcomes, and another NIH program and a grant that just got funded on predicting neurological injuries in children. So we are looking at paternal, sorry, maternal health, infant health, you know, even kids' health, along with you know cardiovascular health, are some of the topics that we have been uh, working on. That's quite an academic and professional journey, starting from math and programming and then getting into AI. What was it like finding yourself working around doctors and hospitals? I mean, I can imagine that for any computer science student, the change might feel foreign and even a little intimidating. What was it like for you? And did you find the experience new for doctors too, you know, to have you around? So to be honest, right, I was, uh, first I was quite wary of taking that decision. Because I, one of the things is in, even inside computer science, our vocabulary is not fixed. So what I'm going to call as a model and an algorithm could be very different to what somebody in high-performance computing thinks of as a model, algorithm, and an application. So for them, a machine learning algorithm itself might be an application of a high-performance you know, high computing problem. So the point I'm trying to make is that the difference in vocabulary is quite high inside computing. So when I went to med school, I was a little, you know, to be honest, overwhelmed. But it took about two, two to three months for me to realize that many of the doctors were actually very forward thinking in how AI and machine learning can have an impact in medicine. You know, they are looking at medical problems and they were doing this AI and, and they were excited. And everybody that I was speaking to, and I had a chance to speak to cardiologists, oncologists, radiologists, neuroradiologists, and people who were working in you know, protein fold predictions to biochemists and the whole group. It really was fascinating to be there. I quite enjoyed it. So I still work with all the colleagues there. I mean, they're all amazing and fantastic to work with. But I think the culture is slightly different. So that's why I made the move back to computing. Comparing your early experiences and those of students today, how has working around doctors changed for computer science students? Maybe due to advances in artificial intelligence and all the excitement around chat GPT, are doctors and hospitals more interested in having students around? They've always been interested in working with machine learning and AI. I think that 
even about 10, 12 years back, doctors saw the potential of machine learning and AI. And I actually had the privilege of talking in a couple of clinical conferences 10 years back. And you could see how they were applying, you know, support vector machines back then. And then, you know, ensemble methods and support vector machines back then. Because remember, Watson came out in 2012, I think. And that, that itself, you know, generated a lot of interest around AI and what potentially AI could do. We have had these, you know, products coming out and kind of like, you know, so, so to say, just, you know, disturbing the market quite a bit. And they really got, you know, enthralled by Watson. So actually, I gave a talk. That, that said the Watson meet clinical radiology. And then I was giving a talk about uh, neuroradiology. And I was uh, talking about how an ensemble method would be a right way to do Alzheimer's disease prediction. Anyway, my point uh, to answer your question would be that, you know, there's always been an interest. Uh, I don't think ChatGPT has increased it by any means. Uh, there's always been an interest. There's always been an awareness. I have been funded with doctors for doing machine learning for the last 13 years. And people that are like David Page, for instance, and actually even in Pit Milosh that I know very well, have been funded for, I don't know, two to three decades now for doing machine learning and AI methods in medicine. So there's always been an interest. Chat GPT has ruffled the feathers quite a bit, and people are now you know, using the word generative AI everywhere. But that's not just restricted to medicine. I don't think this hype has changed much in medicine, but it is true that people are looking at AI and machine learning with renewed vigor. So switching topics, on this podcast, we try to focus on health informatics and explainable AI. Can we talk a little bit about your lab's work? What are you working on that might be of particular interest to our listeners who are pursuing careers in health informatics and applications of artificial intelligence? So when I started in Wake Forest, right, so we, I work in this area called statistical relational learning, which is essentially having relational databases and learning from relational databases. So, you know, if you take any classic machine learning uh, method, they kind of convert everything into a fixed feature vector. And now, of course, because of the power of computing, this vector can be of a very, very large size, but they, it is still a feature vector and they work with that uh, type of a representation to do the learning. What we do uh, in, in the statistical relational uh, learning is combine the ideas of symbolic representations where we have much more meaningful semantic representations of the world using symbols and combine them with some statistical learning methods. It used to be probabilistic learning methods. I mean, I still do probabilities, but now people are doing you know, neural methods as well because they are also statistical, right? So the point is that you know, now some subfield calls it neurosymbolic, which to me is also a statistical relational. It's the same thing with a different flavor. So, you know, so that's what we do. So that's what I established. But when I established, I always had the idea of, look, if you, if you have relational databases, what is the one area where there is a lot of relational data? It is electronic health record, right? You have, you have data about people, relationships between people. You have data about their locations, their diseases, their treatments. You have their billing, their images, their tests, and uh, the whole nine yards. You have, you have like a very rich relational structure, which was one of my inspiration for joining a medical school, right? And so we put together a small team, and we started looking at the first problem that I looked at in the initial thing was with Dr. Jeff Carr, who's now at Vanderbilt, but he was the head of the informatics at Wake Forest when I joined. He was actually by my boss. He came in, I distinctly remember, this was maybe early December 10. He walked into my office and he said, Sriram, I have a gold mine for you. And I thought, you know, this is my first week. This is my first week. He is, you know, we are in our honeymoon phase. And, you know, he is, he's trying to make me happy. 
And so what we did was, I said, okay, tell me, Jeff. He spoke to me for 40 minutes. And at the end of it, I told him, Jeff, this is not a gold mine. This is a diamond mine. This is a platinum mine. It's a vibranium mine. And then he's like, wow, you're, you're so you know, uh, excited about this. And I'll tell you why. Because this, he presented to me a data set that started in 1985. They got people between the ages of 18 and 30, 5,000 people between the ages of 18 and 30 in 1985 across five centers in the US. And then they kept bringing them back initially every two to three years, but then every five years. So 85, 87, 90, 92, 95. But after that, every five years, 2005, 10, 15, 20. And, you know, they were between 18 and 30 then. So, you know, it's about 35 years. So they're between, uh, it's actually close to 40 years. So they are between about 56 and 68 or so. And many of them are having cardiovascular events now. And we have still 3,500 people in, the, in that cohort. And so now you can go back and start looking at saying, can I look at the uh, behavior in 18 and 30 to predict how they are going to have a cardiovascular issue in, in their 50s and 60s? Which of these people are going to have, let's say, a heart attack? Which of these people are going to have a coronary artery calcification? Which of these people are going to develop stroke? Can we start making these predictions by looking at their behavior? And turns out that we started making some really interesting discoveries using graphical models, using the statistical relational learning. We were able to build these trees that were very easily interpretable. And so that started getting my interest into this. At the same time, I started working with another group where we were trying to predict Alzheimer's from MRI images. But again, Alzheimer's is a spectrum. On one end, you have people who have Alzheimer's, one end, people who are completely normal. And then there is this whole set of people in between who are called mildly cognitively impaired. And these are people who have, let's say, severe trauma or some people who are progressing to go to Alzheimer's. So if you're just predicting who has Alzheimer's and who is perfectly normal, it's actually an easy problem. Back then itself, we had like 96% accuracy and 90, you know, in a perfectly balanced data set, for instance. But when you throw that middle population in there, things become very murky and difficult. And I think, and so that was very uh, interesting for me to continue that path where we were looking at which of these people who have this mild cognitive impairment would go on to have Alzheimer's. So that, that was another interesting problem. At the same time, I was looking at the side effect of cancer treatments and heart attacks in cancer treatment. So this is where we started in 2010 to 2013. As a researcher, your job is to study and identify ways AI and machine learning can be leveraged to support doctors and their patients. But once you begin to identify correlations and insights on ways treatments can be improved, how does the back and forth work? I mean, collaborating with doctors. You know, for example, how do you build trust work together and learn from each other. It's always an interesting back and forth, right? I mean, from there, we've been working with doctors throughout till, till today. I even had a call yesterday with a doctor from Regan Street in Indianapolis. And so we, we, we talk to people all the time. And, you know, the first thing you need to do is first show something that the doctor already knows. That's when they start building a trust. And this is where explainability becomes extremely important. You first do something, you first discover something that the doctor knows. Then you know, okay, you know what? That's great. This, this is fantastic. So we can, I understand what you're doing, right? And then you start making newer discoveries or finding newer associations, finding new, new you know, correlations. Again, causation is a little difficult to establish unless you have the right set of experiments. So I tend to think of these as risk factors being predictive. And so it's mainly discriminative the way I think about things. And so if you find these correlations, you find these association rules, you find these probabilistic relationships, 
sometimes qualitative relationships. You say something like, hey, in this subpopulation of women at uh, Bloomington, Indiana, we found that as the degree of the women increases, the risk of gestational diabetes increases. And, and it's quite interesting. Why would somebody with a PhD have a higher risk of gestational diabetes? So we were shocked when we saw this, except when we explained this to Dr. David Haas, who's our OBGYN from Regan Street. He said, <laughs> he started laughing and he said, you know, Sriram, you're looking at the subpopulation in Indiana. So higher education degree means higher age. So what you're really picking up is the correlation between age and gestational diabetes, not between degree and gestational diabetes, because there is a direct uh, correlation. So then we, oh yeah, okay, so we find, found that out. Then we started looking at other interesting relationships, how, let's say, prior risk, polygenic risk could uh, cause gestational diabetes, how exercise uh, levels can cause gestational diabetes, uh, and so on. And then we kept uh, talking after that for some time. What we try to do is try and uh, explain something to the doctor in words they know, get their feedback, and then we go, we move forward with that. So it's really uh, a continuous interaction. I don't think it's a one-way interaction. Can you share an example of something that you and your students are working on that's representative of the types of things that your lab is focusing on? So the, the adverse pregnancy outcomes is a currently running NIH grant. So I'll, I'll talk about that. Although, you know, we've done a lot of work on adverse drug events and cardiovascular health. I'll focus on adverse pregnancy outcomes. This is joint work with Professor Pedja Radiwayak at Northeastern Boston and Dr. David Haas from Regan Street Medical School, Indiana. So two computer scientists and one doctor came together. So Pedja does more of the protein side. He's, he looks at the genetic information, figures out what is the genetic risk for, for a woman to have adverse pregnancy outcome. And I am more looking at it from the machine learning side. Can we build effective machine learning algorithms for predicting who's at a higher risk of a, a adverse pregnancy outcome? You know, for a, such a developed country, US still has a very high risk of adverse pregnancy outcome, all the way from preterm birth, preeclampsia to you know gestational diabetes and there are many 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 factors because of you know how racially diverse we have become many things are changing and we are trying to understand in this project which of the women are having high risk of you know any adverse pregnancy outcome but at this point because the first three years we wanted to focus on a particular thing we were focusing on gestational diabetes and the most important question we are trying to answer is which of the women who have gestational diabetes would go on to have type 2 diabetes and can we somehow mitigate them? First, can we, of course, mitigate the, the chances of them getting gestational diabetes? But there is a direct risk sometimes between getting you know, gestational diabetes or having a high blood pressure to preterm birth. Uh, you know, in many cases, you know, preterm birth, but in a very small fraction of cases, neonatal death as well. And we want to figure out if we can you know, avoid these outcomes. So this is something that we are really working passionately with. We have data sets from a clinical study that Dr. Haas is part of, and also another study out of Bloomington, Indiana. But now we've got electronic health records with from Regan Strafe Hospital. And very recently, we have started working with India. And in terms of that, I'm actually a, one of the panel members because of this project. I've been invited to be one of the panel members in this project called Garbini, which literally in from Sanskrit and Hindi means somebody, a pregnant woman. Okay, so it is about the maternal health back in India. And the goals are so aligned of these two projects that it's amazing. So what we have done is uh, we have also got the data from the Indian population. And now we are trying to get data from a Brazilian uh, cohort, which is also doing a similar work. So what we wanted to do see is if we can develop an algorithm 
that could be predictive uh, and at the same time generalize across different subpopulations in the world. So, you know, we can at least take these findings and apply in, in resource care uh, and see if we can improve the quality of healthcare that's been provided for pregnant women. You mentioned working on projects in India. What are your observations around working across different languages? And are you finding applications like ChatGPT of any use? It's more than the languages. It's the, the problem is uh, how they collect the data and how they mark the data and what they think are important features. I think that changes from one place to another. So it's more like the representation rather than the language themselves. Thanks uh, to the ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes, there is some standardization of these events that are being recorded, but we are still, uh, the, the, the challenge is still, you know, uh, making these representations uniform across, across the different data sets. And that to me is the biggest challenge. And we do spend a lot of time cleaning up the data to line up the data with one another. But the most important thing, and this is why I think I wanted to make this point about 10 minutes back, is that I think this is why when somebody tells me that, you know, will AI take over? I would say, no, no, not yet, right? I mean, the way I see it is the domain experts are the most important people in building an AI algorithm to work, okay? There is, I'm, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings, so I, I actually use that example all the time. There is really no wondering to rule them all. We really need, you know, domain-specific solutions. And that is where, you know, things get really powerful. One of the reasons, you know, Google's images works very well, right? Your image search in Google works very well. Why? Because they have focused it on images and, and that makes uh, perfect sense. So the point I'm trying to make is that if you try to do everything in one system, it's just not going to work. I mean, there's no free lunch. There's no wondering. So, so that's where domain experts become important. To go back to your question, was it difficult to work with the data? It's, it's the absolute data that is difficult to work with. But we talked to the domain experts. We talked to doctors in India. We talked to, we're trying to talk to doctors in Brazil. And so the point is that once we have that, uh, the, if we have the buy-in of the domain experts, and I'm focusing mainly on health here, but this is true of finance and logistics and other uh, problems that I work with. If you have the buy-in from the domain expert, then it's actually very easy to uh, work with them on these problems. But yes, there is a lot of groundwork to be done to construct the infrastructure that you need to apply the algorithm. So, which is why somebody, you know, I submit a paper and somebody says, oh, this is an application of the algorithm to this data. I'm like, do you even know how to apply an algorithm? Because you can't apply something. If you apply an algorithm, you expect it to fail. <laughs> you have to adapt it to the problem at hand. And that adaptation requires a lot of work. And that requires really the genius of PhD students. And, and that's why we are fortunate to have really good PhD students to work with us all the time. As a professor and mentor to so many classes of students, what sorts of advice do you find yourself offering students to help them along with their research? And what kinds of mistakes do students typically make and what insight do you commonly offer? So typically students tend to think that, you know, they can easily reproduce a paper, easily reproduce a code, and just applying this code on this data is going to give them the best result. Or it could be that, you know, they try something and it doesn't work and they get frustrated because it doesn't work. So that's where I'm, I'm there to put my hands around their shoulder and tell them, hey, look, this is why it's called research. When we started, we thought it will work. Sometimes it will not work. Let me give you a classic example. We work on what we call as advice-based learning or essentially knowledge-guided learning. So we get some expert knowledge and then get some data and then use this expert knowledge on the data and then, you know, along, and then run our algorithm also along with these knowledge as constraints and, and see if it improves the performance. So when you do uh, experiments with synthetic data, 
you can create these noise and you can create you know noisy examples noisy features and focus the advice exactly on that noise so your model gets like 99% accuracy but then when you go to real data you actually find that many times the advice that the human gives can actually be inferred from the data and that's where students get frustrated because you know well doctor what whatever doctor x told us it's there in the data and that's when i say okay now let's do something else let's find some rules that that we think are important but have not they don't have that uh, support in the data let's present it to the doctor and see what he or she says and and that's how we get our information when the doctor when they give us some feedback we use that feedback to actually put this into the model so the way i tell my students is don't get frustrated it's really a cycle that keeps going you have a hypothesis we work on the algorithm we develop the algorithm and then you know if it works great we will publish if not we have to refine the algorithm and keep going the biggest frustration i think every student is going to have in these time is that they are the speed of publication is is so rapid right and there are some some groups and some people who push like 50 papers a year you know 40 papers a year this is quite unrealistic and you know it's it it kind of creates a negative energy for some of the students and i feel like you know some some professors can't do 50 papers let's you know in in 6 months it's just not possible right with their with their you know service load with their teaching load with their research load but you know because they have large groups they do this and and students in smaller groups tend to see that and get disheartened so it's my job i think as a as a professor to guide them through this and say don't get disheartened by this your turn will come you just have to wait it out and i use my own story as an inspiration to say that you know look i had to apply so many schools and i did not get into that now i'm doing this you know it just takes time but you know you do your work things will happen is what i keep telling my students that to me is the biggest challenge is how do you avoid frustration how do you keep their mental health up i think that is the most important thing and my advice to every phd student is keep the faith things will happen you just have to you know life goes in circles we have seen this and we have we have seen all these things go up and come back down and and so you know we'll see we i we really hope there won't be another ai winter but who knows we'll have to see <laughs> the promises made are much higher than the deliverables then we might see a winter so we have to be scaling back our promises to to a reasonable level speaking about advising students we've heard that the association for the advancement of artificial intelligence has announced that you've been selected to serve as a program chair of their upcoming Triple AI 24 conference. Congratulations. For students who aren't familiar with the conference, can you tell us a little bit about it and what you'll be doing? I'm really humbled by that being uh, nominated to be the program chair because it, it's really my home conference the way I see it. Triple AI stands for Association for Advancement of Artificial Intelligence and this is basically a long-standing conference nearly 30 for 35 years uh, old now they've had a whole bunch of uh, conferences from early 90s uh, to now every year it happened and there were there are two premier uh, ai conferences one is triple ai the other is called ichkai uh, international joint conference in ai they used to be that you know whenever ichkai happened once in two years and and ichkai was a, a international conference and ai was mainly a us based conference but then triple uh, ai was mainly us based conference but then about 8 9 years back they kind of made sure that triple ai was the winter conference and ichkai was the summer conference so each triple ai is this huge society they give a lot of fellowships they give senior memberships for the researchers in this area it's really a fun community to be part of that i invite all the students to join attend a triple ai workshop or conference if you can because it's really fun to be part of this community 
And what my role is, I'm going to be the program chair, which means that we select the program. We are responsible for the entire set of program. This is with, again, Professor Jennifer D uh, from Northeastern, amazing person to work with. So she and I are doing on this programming program chair together. So we, our role technically is like running the whole program together. So we have to select these conference papers that have to be presented at the conference. And last year, there were like 9,000 papers and about 100 to 2,000 of them got selected. And so we have to be careful on how we select and uh, how we uh, present and how we organize that information. So that's been my main job. And then, you know, figuring out who should we should invite for the invited talks so that the students get to learn more. So it's just uh, in charge of running the whole program. The conference is going to be in Vancouver uh, next year in February, I think between, if I'm right, between February 22nd and 27th of uh, next year. So uh, it's a week-long conference. It's very exciting and I, I love it. So it will be great, uh, you know, if we get more uh, younger students involved in it. The deadline to submit conference papers is coming up in August. For any students hoping to get selected, do you have any advice on what sorts of papers you'd love to see submitted? So there are three tracks in AAAI. First is the main track. Uh, which is the technical track of AAAI. And in the technical track, the students are expected to write a novel AI papers. So you have to have some novelty, some significance. There has to be a technically good paper. So mainly algorithmic advances of some sort needs to be there in, in AI. Remember, AI is not just machine learning. So I have to make that very, very clear, right? You're not just learning. AI includes reasoning. AI includes perception, control, the whole nine yards of, you know, the uh, automating agents. So it's not just machine learning. So there is so many uh, things that is uh, that you can publish on. Probabilistic reasoning is one that I do. Uh, there's knowledge-driven methods. There is planning and reinforcement learning, scheduling, control. So that you have the whole nine yards. All the keywords are listed in, in the AAAI webpage. So that is the main track. Then you have two other tracks. One is uh, called as AI and society track, where you pick a problem of high societal impact. You know, for instance, predicting cardiovascular events predicting, you know, neurological injuries in children, adverse pregnancy outcomes, Alzheimer's, you know, nephrology, I don't know, you, you, anything that you are interested in that has very high impact. And I gave you only health data. You can do climate crisis, you can do energy, you can do even, you know, scheduling something for the city. So you can basically do the, uh, any problem that has a high societal impact, we look at that problem seriously. There, the, the significance of the problem is more important than the novelty of the algorithm. So your algorithmic contributions might not be as high, and that's completely okay, um, because we are looking at very high impact problems where AI makes, you know, makes a dent. So we, that's what we want to see. So that's the second track. The third track, which is the responsible AI uh, track, and you know, the, uh, it's called SRAI. So SRAI track is essentially the track on safe, robust, responsible AI. So we are looking at specifically the safety issues the robustness, how, how can you guarantee robustness? How can you make sure that the solutions are responsible? You know, because everyone is talking about how AI is taking over the world and you know, all the big people keep saying that you know, this could be the problem. And we want to understand you know, much more deeply rather than just wave our hands. So we are looking for technical papers on this topic. Like here are these issues when you deploy this or here are the things that we did and here are what lessons we learned. Things like that are, are going into the third track. So, so those are the three tracks. One track looks primarily at novel contributions, technical contributions. The second one is on the impact of AI. The third is on the you know, understanding the theory robustness of these AI-based systems, safety, robustness, and responsible AI-based systems. So that's what we are looking at, the reliability of these systems. 
with Pit Hex AI's lab focusing, in part, on explainable AI, we're definitely excited about the types of papers that you're going to be seeing. From your vantage point, how do you view explainability, broadly speaking? What does explainability look like on a technical level? What's challenging from a healthcare perspective? And how do you explain explainability to doctors? So for me, explainability is, is this very, again, it's a spectrum. It's a very vaguely defined term, right? So for instance, when I started doing support vector machines, my uh, lab mate uh, was very good in, in support vector machine. He found support vector machines very intuitive and very easily to explain. I, on the other hand, found probabilistic models like Bayesian networks extremely easy to explain and understand. So this notion of explainability varies from whom you're talking, right? So somebody who looks at uh, you know, deep neural networks may understand explainability by looking at local explanations of perturbations of example space and you know, all the Shapley functions and so on. They, can, they, they understand it better. But when you go and explain this to a doctor, you might want to put it in the context of the problem that they are facing, right? So you want to say, hey, you did this last year for this patient, and now you're changing the treatment for another patient who looks very similar to this patient. How do you explain it? So that's what we try to do. We try to do uh, explanations if, if that are much more grounded to the doctor so they understand the, the grounded explanations better. So there is this model explanation, which is at a fairly high level, a single decision tree, a single set of if-then-else rules, a probabilistic model that, that you know, is reasonably more interpretable than, let's say, a deep neural network or a support vector machine. But on the other hand, you also have these uh, grounded explanations, which basically grounds them to the scenarios that I've seen, right? So for instance, when I go to the doctor and I, with acute pain or whatever, if the doctor is gonna say, Sriram, you have diabetes. So I don't want to put you on steroid unless you're in you know, very severe pain. So, and they, they do choose when they are going to put me on steroid to bring down certain things, right? So some infections, for instance, I had a very bad ear infection, I was on short-term steroid. So the point is that you can, you can actually understand explainability from these different you know, uh, lenses. So for me, explainability is an open problem. There are researchers who take a deep neural network and then they have to explain this neural network uh, to the user by, by constructing local uh, explanations. By the way, the, the earliest paper that I know is from 1995 by Mark Raven on his PhD thesis where he constructed a decision tree from a neural network. I mean, again, Jude Shavlik's group was working on this problem about 30 years back. So it's not new, again, the, the solutions, the knowledge distillation ideas are not uh, new. On the other hand, you have somebody like Professor Cynthia Rodin from Duke, who is more vehement about saying, you know, you cannot construct a black box model and then try to explain it. You want to construct a model that is much more explainable. And I agree with her on, on many problems. If this is the case, you don't want to construct a, a, a complete black box model and then try to explain the black box model. But on the other hand, if my black box model is so powerful that it can save a life, then is the question of explainability important or not? Is, is very, you know, should I, should I still try to explain this as much as I can and deploy this model? And, and I think that's a tough question. I'll give you one real life example. I think we are running out of time, but I want to give you one real life example. Same Jeff Carr, then I, Dr. Jeff Carr, whom I talked to you about as the person who hired me and talked to me about the cardiovascular data. Once I brought the result to him and I said, hey, Jeff, look, I got 90% accuracy, but this is a boosted model, so it's very hard to interpret. And he's like, Sriram, if you can make this model go to 99% and I can predict 20 years in advance with a 99% accuracy, this person is going to have a heart attack. Do I really want it to be explainable? It's, it's, I'm, and my answer to that, I mean, maybe she doesn't, but maybe another doctor wants to, and I can see that you know, problem. So to me, explainability is this 
beautiful problem that i don't think anybody has a clear solution and yeah, that's why i think it's i'm i'm very excited by the papers that come out on this area because you know each of them has you know their own way of doing things and i think it's like letting a thousand flowers bloom and that's what i like about the current research inside ai is is you know, you're trying to explain these really hard models you're trying to construct high quality explainable models you're trying to do something in between where at every step of your construction you're trying to get some explanations give it to the human bring it back into the model and then improve the model so there is a whole uh, set of diverse problems going on and i think that's why i find this whole area fascinating thanks so much for elaborating on explainability for us and next and before we close we like to ask all of our guests to offer listeners a research project idea what's something that you'd love to see students work on i would love to see student pursue how to build an intelligent assistant to a doctor so if a, if a if a person comes to the clinic i come to the clinic and the doctor asks me a bunch of question would it be possible for before even the doctor asks me the bunch of question would can i enter the uh, questions to a system or you know a virtual voice assistant i don't care asks me a bunch of question pulls the relevant information to the doctor recommends the treatment plans provides the alternative arrangements so for instance even things like i go at 6 o'clock the the pharmacy closes at 7 o'clock then it should point out to the nearest pharmacy that's a 24 hour pharmacy so simple things from there to saying you are prescribing a steroids to shriram who is diabetic why are you doing this and the doctor could say oh thank you for letting me know i forgot that you know he was diabetic or he didn't tell me that i could be walking to an urgent care and he didn't tell me that and or the person could say no he's in very acute pain i want to bring it down and then we will talk about this so i his a1c is under control and and stuff like that where you can have this conversational system that that helps the doctor so remember i don't want to take the nurse assistants and other people out of the job they have their job but it is about pulling the resources that are necessary while the doctor is examining me because think about it how how much time do a, does a doctor have i know you want to answer in two um, sentences i'm taking more time i'm sorry about that but how much time does a doctor have they have they spend 5 minutes with the patient and within that 5 minutes they have to make some very key decisions and how can an ai machine learning system help make those key decisions uh, so that the the doctor makes perfect decision so that is my dream problem if anybody can <laughs> join us on that that would be fantastic it's been an immense pleasure speaking with you today thank you so much for joining us and uh would you like to sign off with any closing messages from your lab yeah we are doing a lot of work in human allied artificial intelligence i'm changing it to saying ai in the loop healthcare systems because i believe with all the chat gpt and stuff ai is going to be there everywhere and so we are trying to figure out how can we work with humans but not treating humans as an adversary so it's not an adversarial learning but more an uh, human and uh, machine uh, working together for the betterment of the society so that's what our lab tries to do and i i'm a firm believer of horses for courses so if a plain old logistic regression can work well for a problem i'm not going to reinvent the wheel and publish a paper just you know so that we can get a citation so that's what we do in the lab we find problems and get inspired by real problems and try and solve this and we have a fantastic set of students and uh, it's really them doing it i'm just you know messenger slash salesman sometimes they are the one who really are doing the hard work and it's a fantastic group so i would invite people who are interested in working with humans on ai problems to apply and join our lab and it would be fun to work with us that's a great shout out you and your students are doing amazing work for sure thank you again for joining us today 
Thanks everyone for tuning in and for following the show. The Health Unexplainable AI podcast is produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health Unexplainable AI Research Laboratory at University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Health Information Management. I'm Jordan Gospore. Thanks for listening.